It's hard to believe it's another Christmas season, and we're going to be taking a break from our series in the Sermon of the Mount, although I think everything that we've talked about up to this point is relevant towards this Advent season. This morning, we will look at hope. Richard Sibbs was a 17th century Puritan preacher. He wrote a book, it was 175 pages long, on a single verse. That verse was Psalm 42, verse 5. And the title of the book was The Soul's Conflict with Itself. Here's the verse, Psalm 42, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Now this psalm speaks to our dilemma this morning. When we talk about Advent themes and this morning hope, when it comes to hope, there are times that every one of us struggle with hope. What it tells us is that hoping in God does not come natural. And there are times like this verse that we have to preach it to ourselves over and over and over again. This is one time where it's okay to talk with yourself, okay? (laughs) Now our problem again is, is really... Of course, with us. From a humanity point of view, hope usually begins where we think the problem lies. And usually it's out there somewhere, never in our hearts. So for many people, during the season, if their hope lies in politics, it lies in a particular candidate or ideology. For others, if their hope lies in marriage, that means the other person then is responsible for their happiness. If their hope lies in their family, then their hope depends on the achievements of their kids. If their hope lies in money, then it's the accumulation of stuff and money. Even if hope lies in the institutional church, then for many, the preacher becomes the source of their hope. Or, for many preachers, the congregation becomes their source of hope, as they both look for the perfect preacher and perfect congregation. There's a story of a church that was in stress in Canada and they were getting a new pastor. And the very first night of their arrival, this family invites them over to their house with all their kids and their grandkids. And it was a positive evening. And they told this pastor that we hope that you work out. We've been praying for you and we're really excited and we're going to be behind you. Exactly one month later, The invitation to come over to their house again was given to this pastor. And this time, instead of saying, we hoped that you would work out, they said, well, we see you're not going to work out. And we just wanted to know that we're going to work to get rid of you. See, their hope was in the institutional church. And I have to tell you that Bev and I were perplexed in that situation. Yes, that was one of our stories. Because in the context of this church, we learned and found some of the most godly people we ever met. And we learned about prayer. But we were in a quandary with this family because their refusal, the church's refusal to confront in love this family who caused such incredible pain to people in the community. People who, when they encountered them, lived without hope. We just were kind of mystified. But you know, here's what Paul says. 
Paul tells us where we were in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, remember that you were at times separated from Christ, alienated from commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. And then he has this phrase, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where every single person in this auditorium at least was. Some are still there because they've not made a decision to embrace Christ. And so in one instance, Paul says, everything outside of Christ, and I'm going to use this word false hope. Let me explain what that is. Hope determined by people or circumstance. That's false hope. It's not hope that is eternal in its scope. And so Paul tells us when we worship the wrong things, we lose hope. Now when you think about hope, there's really three views you can look at. The first is, hope is a desire for a good future. You might hear some young people say something like this. I hope I get married and have a wonderful spouse and great kids. They hope for something in the future and they hope for that to be good. Secondly, it's a thing in the future we desire. Think about Christmas. How many kids are saying right now, I hope I get, and you fill in the blank for Christmas. Now, none of these are wrong. But it's not the hope we celebrate during the Christmas season. It's not the hope we have in Christ. So when we talk about a biblical view of hope, there's two aspects. One is expectation, and the two is confidence. So we expect Christ to come again, and we are confident that he will come again. Amen? See, that's a biblical view of hope. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now John Piper puts up this definition of a biblical hope. I like his definition, so I'm going to use it. So we can have that on the screen. Here's his definition. Hope is a heartfelt, joyful conviction that our short-term future is governed governed by an all-caring, and long-term future beyond, and our long-term future beyond death will be happy beyond imagination in the presence of an all-satisfying glory of God. Now, that's a pretty complicated definition, isn't it? But you hear what he says? It's both present, short-term, but it's also future, long-term. And our hope in Christ determines how we live today, but it also will determine where and how we live in the future. And today we know we live with Psalms 42 verse 5. And we know that we live in turmoil and at times it gets to us. And we know we also live with the reality of hope in Christ. That even though our emotions contradict what we know to be true, we remain focused on God. Now let me share a few principles about hope that we find out in Scripture. The first is this. Hope is given by God. It is something that is given to us through his son, but also through his spirit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 16 through 17. Now may our Lord, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father 
who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now celebration is a, Christmas is a celebration of Christ. He is our hope. And since he's our hope, we have this expectation of what he's doing and will do. Again, it's both present and future. And we have this confidence in Christ. And we have the witness of Paul about this confidence. And he's writing to the Christians in Rome. And his own circumstances were not always what he had hoped for. He did not hope for a prison term. He did not hope for a stoning. He did not hope for all this persecution that came upon him because he gave his heart on the road to Damascus to Christ. But that was his reality. But listen to what he says in terms of his own witness about this hope. In Romans 8 verse 18 he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And then down in verse 24 he says this, For in this hope, What he just said. He said, I know life can be tough. I know it can be difficult. But for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what is he sees? And again, he is talking about what it means to live by faith. In verse 31, he says, what shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then in verse 35, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, which many people have experienced? And then in verse 38, he says, For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is his hope. And what all this is saying is this, that we're going to go through hard times. And there'll be times that it's going to be very difficult to feel the hope of Christ. But that's where trust comes in. And trust guides us to live accordingly with hope in spite of our emotions. I mean, try this exercise for a moment. Think about those emotions of negativity. Think about times where you feel like you don't matter. Or you feel unappreciated. Or you feel like you're being taken advantage of. Or you have doubt, you have discouragement. Think about the times where you sit down and you simply say, I can't take this anymore. And take some time to look. Where is this coming from? And sometimes you can make the lists of people out there, of circumstances out there, of situations But many times what we don't reflect on is our own heart. And it's during these times we have to center ourselves on Christ. And it helps us navigate what is happening around you. Even though our emotions are very, very heavy. Paul describes this in in a passage when he writes to the Corinthian church. Where he uses a word that's descriptive. And he talks about, and they used to use this in, in ways of torturing confessions out of people. They'd lay them on the ground, lay a door on top of them, and start piling rocks on them. And so Paul describes this, saying that we are are pressured, but it doesn't overcome us. 
But take some time to think about your own heart in the midst of these. Now, one of the ancient disciplines was called the discipline of silence. And it's very tough in our world of noise. Have you noticed we live in a very noisy world? But what the discipline of silence is, is it says take some time and you set aside everything for a few minutes. And then you fill yourself with a particular truth that you need at that moment. It isn't that you just get quiet and do nothing. It's that you start saying, okay, I will trust in God. I will trust in God. I call it preaching to myself. And just repeat over and over and over again. It's what our heart needs. To understand the truth. Secondly, our hope is a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now think of something that's alive. We have grandkids, and they were over the other day. And they're very much alive. And they're active. And they're full of energy. And they have movement from upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs, downstairs, upstairs. As many, any, many parents here knows that a child can completely destroy a room in about one minute flat. But there's a lot of movement when you think about something that's alive. It's active. Now think about something that's dead. I mean, it's nothing. It just kind of lays there. And what I find fascinating is that Scripture tells us things like this, that we're to die to self. But we're alive in our hope in Christ. So where the activity is then, it's our relationship with Christ, not in terms of ourself. And it's so difficult in our American culture. There's been many books written about narcissism. One I read about a year ago was about how we as Americans have a messianic complex. We have this delusion that we are in control. And when we think that we're in control, we'll worship the wrong things. And you can see the evidence of this because people then are restless and they search for hope. So what do they do? They change jobs, they change their marriages, they change churches. And they say, well, I hope I'm going to find a connection. Soren Kierkegaard said, a life always expresses the result of our dominant thoughts. Remember I said about the discipline of silence and putting in what we need to put in because so much noise is out there? The question we're faced with this morning is, does God make a difference? Now, most of us would say yes. But what about specifics? See, it's a very general question. Does God make a difference? Think about it in terms of degree, scope, and relevance. Degree, how much does he make a difference? Is it just some, some parts of our life and not all parts of our life? And if so, which ones? The scope, in what areas? The degree, how much relevance? Is he relevant in our culture today? Or do we need outside sources? Now remember last week we talked about this faith belief gap. And evidently it's innate in our fallen nature. We like to talk a lot. We have good intentions. 
We have a lot of good theory. We read, we study, we strategize. But there's a failure to enact. There's a failure to engage. And so we say, yes, I accepted Jesus. But on the other hand, we say, you know, don't mess with my life. How many times have we asked people and invited people to a prayer instead of inviting them to a life? Faith without works is dead. Back in the year 2000, a book grabbed my attention. It's a business book, but the title was called The Knowing Doing Gap. And here was the opening line, the preference. It said, why does so much education, training, consulting, and research, so many books, articles, seminars, produce so little change in what managers and companies actually do? I thought, wow. I want to read that to find out why there's so much education and training and consulting and books and seminars and why inside the church does all that activity and all that great education produce so little change in the church in America. I mean, you heard me say that in the last probably 60, 70 years, we've gone from influence, and influence described as people who attend church three or more times on a Sunday, I mean in a month, okay? That's really all they could talk about. But we've gone from a 48%, and now we're down to about 11% of Americans that actually attend church three or more times in a month. So, I need to read this book. Later on, they said this. Over 90% of the companies who spend massive amount of some money writing mission statements, core values, strategic plans, all those papers find their way into some filing cabinet and are never put into action. Can you see why I was interested in this book? I mean, why is it that we in the church default to comfort and preferences? Why in the church do we settle for a Christian subculture that seeks isolation and entertainment over mission? Why is there so much talk about faith and so little transformation? Now, in this book, there was eight observations. I'm going to share them very quickly for you this morning because I think there's strong relevance to this whole faith without works. Here's what they discovered in the business world. The first thing you need is the why before the how. They say so many companies lost the why they existed and they got caught up in the what and the how. Programs and policies. It becomes about us. Why does the church exist? Why is the head of the church? It's all about reconciliation. Amen? You know, we talked about being peacemakers last week. Peacemaking is about reconciliation. I'll try not to move my head too much. (laughs) Secondly, knowing comes from doing and teaching others how. We call it discipleship, don't we? I mean, education comes from doing and hearing. Just not reading, just not engaging this. To your own. Actually about getting out there and engaging the culture for Jesus Christ. 
Think in our culture today how many universities are full of teachers who never left their classroom and actually did what they teach. How many Christians have never left the church and actually did what we teach? Next, actions count more than elegant plans. Faith without works is dead. Next, there's no doing without mistakes. This is the whole freedom to fail, to risk. How many times did we say, well, we never did it that way before? Fear fosters a knowing doing gap. I think about the scripture in 1 John. Perfect love casts out what? Fear. See, what happens when we're afraid, we lose innovation and creativity. Fight the competition and not each other. I've said this so many times, people are not the enemy. And yet we make people the enemy. We fight against a system, an ideology that's evil. But people are so valuable to God that Christ died for every single person. One of the things I learned when I was in San Francisco, because we lived back in the mid-70s in the Haight-Ashbury district, which was called the pseudo, it was was basically the masochistic gay section. And this is before anything else. Lifestyles and people that most of us are very uncomfortable with. But when you got to know people because you lived with them, you realized they were someone's son and someone's daughter, and they had stories, and they had very painful stories. But Christ died for those people. Just like he died for you and for me. Measure what matters. You heard me say constantly, inside the church, Dallas Willard talks about the ABCs. The only thing we measure is attendance, buildings, and cash. And long as those three are going up, we're fine. But how do you measure transformation? How do you measure Stories. What leaders do, how they spend their time, and resources matter. What this means is, since we are about reconciliation and reaching the lost, as your pastor, better have a few people who do not know Christ that I'm actively engaged in if I want GBC to be involved with those outside the church. It means that if I want GBC to be generous in their giving of everything, then I, as your pastor, better be generous with my money, stuff, attitudes, and time. This thing's really starting to crack. Does that make sense? That in other words, we do what we expect other And we are who we expect other people to be. Next principle. Hope is our witness of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 through 15. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And Peter says, there's a lot of people there. (laughs) But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Why would the world ask about our hope? There's really two answers to that question. 
according to Peter. One, it's the ability to live courageously in the face of trouble and threats. Falls apart. And the other is good works. And we do those good works with gentleness and respect. And we do those good works regardless of who is around us and what they are doing to us. Now in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now let me say something about this because so often we talk about hope being a living hope and how it produces good works and people ask. And again, this is hard for us to understand in America. We realize that this is a effort. By that I mean that we as a body have a diverse unity. And just don't think about that in terms of, am I going in and out now? Okay, I'm just going to grab a microphone over here. Testing, one, two, there we go. This is a community effort. And again, don't think about this just in terms of GBC, but think about this in terms of the church worldwide. The reason we have different churches is not so that we imitate each other competing for missing sheep. It's not so we can compare ourselves with each other saying, well, you know what? Those people, over there, they're, they're a little weird because they don't believe exactly like we believe. There's different churches not because of our differences. The reason there's different churches is that each church needs to find its calling, its niche. And ask this question, what can we do that no one else is doing? See, we think so often when we hear sermons... That we can do this on our own. This is this American individualistic worldview. That's not a biblical worldview. It's a lie of Satan. And we need to hear this. That this is a community effort. That we live in hope. And we give a witness of hope to this world. Now like most things, our culture changes. And we've seen some shifts in our culture over the last several decades. You probably heard, oh, 15, 20 years ago, a lot of talk about we now live in a postmodern culture. Remember that phrase, postmodern? It simply means that our generation realized that modernity was not the key and it did not hold the truth for us. So it became post, which means we no longer believe what modern or modernity tells us. Well, we've shifted from a postmodern culture because they left something and it was in a vacuum. And in a vacuum, something always entered into that vacuum. We now live in what they call a post-truth culture. 
because there was no foundation, we just told everybody what we didn't believe in anymore. This post truth culture says things like this. Well, if you disagree with me, then you hate me. Loving me means that you have to agree with me. Things that make me feel bad are wrong. So I don't want to feel shame. I don't want to feel guilt. I don't want to lose. It's why in sports we have this participation awards now because you can't have a team lose because you might make those kids feel bad. Things that make us feel good are right and true. Now, when you start studying this post-truth culture, which means truth really has no basis or foundation, it's just on the whims of whoever approaches whatever, there's no longer any cordial disagreement. Have you noticed that? There's no longer civility in the midst of our disagreement. And what we are doing is creating hopelessness. That in part, and just in part, explains why. What we see today, when one side loses the election, it's trauma, chaos, and crisis. And many act out in destructive ways, and what we're finding out now is that these people didn't even vote in the election. That doesn't matter. It's just that this makes me feel bad, therefore it is bad. You disagree with me, therefore you hate me. That's the kind of culture that we are entering today. Now, having said that, my last point is that we must live an intentional home. When you look what's around us and what is needed, 1 Peter 1 verse 13 says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Notice two distinctive qualities that talk about what we put up here. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your mind, he says. Then the next word, sober mind, it means discipline it. So actively engage in what you are putting into your head. And then set, trust. And literally, the Greek says this. Set your hope fully. It's hope your hope. That's what it means. Hope your hope. And that hope's based upon the grace and revelation of Jesus Christ. So in the midst of all this, in the midst of the holiday season, what we have to understand is this. That we have to practice hope. We can theorize about hope. We can talk about hope. We can sing about hope. We can declare the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. But somewhere along the line, we have to practice, practice, practice. And you're going to get it wrong sometimes. And some days you're going to get up and you're not going to feel like hoping for much. But that's where the body comes in. And we surround each other. And we walk with each other. And we pray with each other. And we help each other in need. And that in part is what we were talking about last week about being peacemakers. We reconcile things. And to reconcile means, yes, a relationship with ourselves to God. But reconcile means so much other things kinds of things. You know, if you reconcile your bank account, what do you do? You match it up according to what the truth is in the bank. And reconciling our lives with God means that we start lining everything. And so we have to destroy the lies that we believe, and we have to reconcile truth and how that's played out in our lives. So practice hope. 
be intentional and feed our minds with hope. When you study philosophy, what I find fascinating is that whether people are in a religion or not, people say something like this. Well, we know that we are made for something more than we can see. There's almost an instinct of that. And when you realize, according to Genesis, that we are created in the image of God, you realize where that instinct comes from. And people say things like this. We know something is missing. And we want to participate in something beyond ourselves. And so in a secular term, there's the quest for fame. There's the quest for celebrity status. There's the quest for power. But people are always searching for something larger than themselves. And this is what hope does. It connects that whatever it is going on inside of their lives and helps them to realize that their value is determined by who God is and not who this world says they are. Their value is determined in their relationship with Christ and not by name-dropping a bunch of celebrities saying, well, you know, I, I know these people and I am with these people. The value is not determined by who wins and who loses because ultimately in eternity, God desires everyone to come to him. And it's why he made access through his son. So, practice hope. And for some of you this week and some of you this season, it's going to take a lot of practice because I had several friends that Christmas season is one of the worst seasons of their year because of everything that happened to them when they were a child at Christmas. So they got to deliberately, intentionally fill their minds and to practice and to practice and to practice, even though every ounce of their body wants to run and hide and say, I'll come out of hiding after Christmas season. But see, they're too valuable to the body. They're too valuable to Christ to do that. So, this Advent season, our hope is in Christ. And let's, as a body, practice that hope with people that God engages with us. Amen? I'm going to invite the band to come back up, and we are going to sing a song in closing. As they do that, I want you to pray with me. Father God, I pray for all of us this morning at GBC that you will Just help us fill our minds with the kind of stuff that we need to fill our minds with. And empty ourselves of the things that we need to empty ourselves of. I pray that we're not too proud not to ask for help. I pray that we don't let our arrogance cause us to hide and to run. And I pray that our arrogance doesn't cause us to judge people. Saying, why can't you just get over it? But may we quiet ourselves. May we listen to your spirit. May we hear from your word. And may we, this holiday season, be the kind of hope that isn't found in shopping malls or under Christmas trees. But the kind of hope that is both present and future and gives the peace which passes any kind of understanding that we can manufacture on a human level. 
thank you, Lord, for this possibility. We thank you for the reality that even though we struggle, you don't. That even though we're impatient with ourselves and each other, that you are so patient with us. So lead us, Lord. May we be that living hope that's a witness to this world. May people ask us this season, why are you so hopeful? And may we be ready to give that answer that we find in you. In your name we pray. Amen.